0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're living in a new age of huge wildfires driven by climate. We have been altering the Earth
1: at a large scale, including the atmosphere, ever since the last glaciation ended. But the whole process went on afterburners when we
0: began burning fossil fuels. Our tools haven't changed much, but the fires
2: have. In my experience, through a good part of my career, The time when fire burned was mostly during the daytime, and then there would be opportunities to do fire suppression at night. Now, some big fires burn 24 hours a day. So how do we make our landscapes and
3: communities
0: resilient to
3: fire? We need to make sure that when the fires reach communities, which they will, that communities are protected.
0: Living in an age of fire, up next on Climate One. Before we get into the fire episode, a recent decision from the U.S. Supreme Court has major implications for the federal government's ability to confront climate disruption. For background, in 2007, the court's 5-4 decision in Massachusetts v. EPA recognized the EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. President Obama directed the EPA to do that by reining in emissions from power plants. Then in 2016, the Supreme Court put Obama's Clean Power Plan on hold. Trump's plan was overturned on his last day in office, and President Biden has yet to issue his own. Now, in the decision recently handed down in West Virginia versus EPA, the court significantly narrowed the EPA's ability to regulate heat trapping gases. Erwin Chemerinsky, dean at Berkeley Law, filed an amicus brief in support of the EPA position. We asked him what the ruling means. Chief Justice Roberts said if an administrative
4: agency is going to act on a so-called major question. Congress has to be very specific in the authority that it gives to the agency. He said here, Congress was not sufficiently specific as to the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. He said this is a major question. Therefore, Congress, until it gives the power to the agency, hasn't provided sufficient authority for regulation. I think this has enormous implications in the environmental area, as well as in other areas. In the environmental area, it could be seen that any major regulation is a major question. Rarely is the statute going to be as specific as what the court would want. So this then provides a basis for challenging countless federal environmental regulations. This also extends beyond just the environmental area. Think of all of the areas where agencies have power to deal with issues of public health and safety, or for that matter, any of the areas where agencies regulate. Inevitably, there are statutes that give agencies power. Many of them deal with major questions, and it's so easy
0: for the court to say, well, this statute isn't sufficiently specific. Right. And of course, it opens the interpretation of what is major. The term major questions doctrine appears more than two dozen times in the majority and concurring opinions. Was this the first codification of that doctrine? Is that really what this is about?
4: This isn't the first time the court has spoken of major questions. There's a case several years ago where the court referred to when it comes to major questions, Congress has to be specific in granting agency authority. But I think if you'd have talked to law professors, to sophisticated, experienced lawyers, to most judges, even a relatively short time ago, none would have ever heard of the so-called major questions doctrine. Now it's an enormously important principle limiting agency authority in the environmental area
0: and in all areas. Right. And, and some people would say when major questions comes up, it's really kind of a, a term uh, for deregulation and narrowing administrative authority. Robinson Meyer in The Atlantic wrote that the decision in West Virginia versus EPA is significant for what it didn't do. It did not prohibit the EPA from regulating heat trapping carbon pollution from existing power plants. So is that still intact for? Uh, deriving from Massachusetts versus EPA, which is the case that gave the EPA the authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Well, the good news
4: is the court did leave to the EPA the authority to specifically regulate power plants and greenhouse gas emissions. They didn't close the door entirely on that. On the other hand, I think they limited the authority of what the EPA can do. And this includes precluding market-based solutions.
0: Right. And the independent think tank, the Rhodium Group, argues that while West Virginia uh, constrains the EPA's power, it doesn't change the overall game much. And in fact, it clarifies what paths are open to the EPA. What do you think of that reasoning? I think it's true
4: that it does clarify for the EPA how it can go about regulating, including greenhouse gas emissions. But I think that minimizes the significance of this case. What the Supreme Court said is, Whenever there is a major question, and as you pointed out, the court doesn't define what's a major question. Congress has to give the agency specific instructions of what to do. So I think what this does is open the door to challenge to many things that agencies do with regard to environmental law or public health and safety or anything else by saying, this is a major question and Congress didn't give
0: sufficiently specific guidance. Uh, We're going to see lots of major questions, litigation coming. So the Biden administration has been waiting to issue its own plan uh, while this has worked through the courts. What lawful options does the Biden administration now have to regulate greenhouse gas emissions? I think the Biden administration
4: does have a roadmap to what it can do. It certainly can regulate power plants within their fence lines with regard to greenhouse gas emissions. I think it's beyond that that the Biden administration is going to be limited at least unless until Congress gives more specific authority to the EPA.
0: It seems to be that a lot of these uh, specific laws were passed in the 1970s when climate wasn't a major concern. We haven't done major climate national policy. It seems like uh, what the outcome of this is that um, if climate wasn't specifically uh, assigned as a concern in those 70s le- or eighty previous legislation, then it it's not going to work. That's the real concern, about what the court did in
4: West Virginia versus EPA. The Clean Air Act does give the EPA quite extensive authority to regulate air pollution. Justice Kagan made the point in her dissent that conservatives have always wanted to stress text. Here there's textual authority, but the Supreme Court says that doesn't matter because it's not sufficiently specific. So many of the environmental issues today weren't contemplated at the time the environmental statutes were written. As you point out, the Clean Air Act wasn't written to deal specifically with climate change. But I think the dissent is right. Why does it have to be that specific? It gives the authority to the EPA to regulate power plants. Why isn't that enough?
0: Erwin Chemerinsky is Dean of Berkeley Law. Thank you for coming on and sharing your insights on West Virginia versus EPA. Thank you for having me. 2021 saw a record number of acres burned by wildfires across the U.S., endangering lives, displacing communities, and sending unhealthy smoke into millions of lungs. The first half of this year has seen even more blazes than the same period last year, a whopping 33,000 wildfires from January through June. And with the American West continuing to suffer under the worst drought in 1,200 years, the rest of the year frankly looks scary. The science is clear. Human-caused climate disruption is making lands more conducive to burning, and much of the world is increasingly living in flammable landscapes. Forest experts say there are tools to help reduce the risk of catastrophic fires, keep forests alive as valuable carbon sinks, and make communities more resilient to megafires. Stephen Pine spent his youth as a hotshot, jumping from planes to fight fires on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Now an emeritus professor at Arizona State University, he's written several fire histories of different parts of the world. His latest book is The Pyrocene, How We Created an Age of Fire and What Happens Next. Pine says a simple way to conceptualize this history is to think about it as three fires.
1: The first fire appears when plants begin colonizing continents. So we have fossil charcoal that dates back over 420 million years so as soon as plants are there, we have fire, and the earth has never left it that fire. But then, a uh, couple of million years ago, uh, some creatures appeared, the hominins, who had the ability to start and maintain fire and interact with it in various ways. And that gives rise to what I think of as a second fire. You know, we often speak of a second nature, the way human artifice has remade first nature into a new kind of landscape. And that's really what what fire is about. We begin domesticating fire. We use it for all kinds of things, for aboriginal economies, for agriculture. We now have a species monopoly over fire. So we are a uniquely fire creature. The Earth is the only planet we know with fire on a uniquely fire planet. And we have been altering the Earth at a large scale, including the atmosphere, ever since the last glaciation ended. But the whole process went on afterburners when we began burning fossil fuels or what I think of as lithic landscapes. Because all of our fire practices in, in of second fire all had ecological checks and balances. There are barriers and buffers. But when we go to third fire and we begin going into lithic landscapes, all those old checks and balances are gone. And at that point the whole process has has broken the boundaries and our, our human quest for fire has normally been one about finding things to burn and new ways to burn it to get things out of that but now the prob there's there's plenty to burn there's too much to burn the problem is the sinks we can't put all of the waste products so we're unhinging the atmosphere we're affecting the oceans and hydrology generally we're certainly affecting the Earth's biotas. So my sense is that when you add all of these fire practices together, both in living and lithic landscapes, we're creating the fire equivalent of an ice
0: age. So what I heard from that is that there there was sort of natural fire um, burning things on the surface, and the change really became when we began to dig things out of the ground, coal and oil, and burn them. And you know, fire has played a role in the cycles of creation and extinction uh, throughout geologic history. Do you think that fire is playing a role in human extinction? I mean, in
1: some ways, our unique capability as a creature is fire. So if we create a world with more fire, you would think we would be privileging ourselves. But we've created a runaway fire, the extent that it could lead to our own extinction. There are really good fires and bad fires, and we make that distinction. We made a pact, a kind of alliance with fire long ago, even before we were a species, a distinct species, And we agreed to each expand the domain of the other, which we've done. I mean, we've even taken fire to Antarctica. We use fire to go off-planet. But that mutual assistance pact is looking more and more like a Faustian bargain. And we were made by good fire, and we may very well be unmade by bad fire.
0: You know, we hear these days a, a lot about uh, so-called cool burns uh, that indigenous people started as a way of stewarding the lands on which they live. Tell us about aboriginal fire and also how that might relate to other elements such as air, water and earth.
1: So how did people for so long live with fire? And why are the megafires that we see around the planet now, these really feral flames that are, you know, blasting over What appeared to be mature countries. Why are they limited to developed countries? It is really a pathology of a fossil fuel civilization. And not only because that affects climate, but it also affects how we live on the land, how we organize our landscapes, how we get our power, and the rest of it. So, how did we do it before? Uh, In many ways, uh, fire is a relationship, it's not just a tool. Uh, It requires tending. It requires training. Uh, There's an argument to be made that fire is our first domestication, because it required a change in our behavior. It's not just something we can use and walk away from. Without consequences, we we are engaged in, in a relationship. So there are seasonal considerations. There are terrain considerations. Fire burns better uphill than down. Um, there are biological considerations. What kind of fire do you get? Do you get a surface fire like across the savanna? Or are you going to get fires that na- naturally go into the crowns and burn really high intensity that you probably don't want a lot of? So you have a lot of control, particularly if fire already exists in that landscape. You can take over that landscape by changing the timing and placement of fires. And there's a lot of evidence that people have done this. But then we begin changing the structure of fuels, of stuff to burn. And that's really, for me, what agriculture means. So we cut, dry, burn. uh, We drain peat. Um, We release domesticated animals, which alter the vegetation. We do all of these kinds of things. And it allows us to expand the realm of fire and our ability to interact with it. So all of this has gone on and it's gone on for a very long time. But when we converted to fossil fuels, suddenly we forgot all of this (laughs) and we decided we will use the power that burning fossil fuels gives us and we will remake all of these habitats so that we can eliminate open fire. And in European intellectual history, there's a very strong animus against open fire. It is taken as a stigma of primitivism. You have to remove it to be modern, scientific, and enlightened.
0: Steve, you seem to be putting fossil fuels at the center of this change from having a relationship from f- with fire to using it as a tool and having from good fire to bad fire. We're moving toward a world where we want to electrify everything to stop burning oil and gas, fossil fuels. So what does that future look like where we stop burning fossil fuels? Will that restore a healthy and natural balance and relationship with fire? What does that look like?
1: Let me be clear. I'm happy that my house is not filled with smoke and at risk from fire the way it would have been. I'm happy that cities don't have fires routinely running through them anymore. All of that, I think, could be considered an advance, but we tried to project that same set of conditions onto the countryside and then onto wildlands. And at that point, it has been disastrous because they need fire in many cases. They need the right kind of fire. And we completely disrupted it. We've shown we can disrupt. We have to show now that we can also manage. So if we could get the climate genie, if not in the bottle, then at least underground again, then what kind of fire scene could we expect in the planet? I would expect a lot more fire. One of the paradoxes of our current state is that despite all of these uh, megafires, and sort of feral flames rampaging across the countryside, the amount of burning on the planet is actually declining. And this is because of the substitution of fossil fuels, primarily in agriculture and pastoral economies, that are no longer using fire. So we have a very strange and limited view of how fire functions on the planet. And if we got the climate situation back under control, we could expect to see a lot more fire in our countrysides and certainly in our wildlands and nature preserves.
0: And you would call that the return of good fire, cool burns, would that be prescribed burns, right?
1: That's right. Normally, we think of good fire as as light burns, cool burns, repeated frequent burns, not, not these sort of eruptive burns. But there are some parts, I mean, there are some biotas that just burn by immolating their crowns, and then grow up out of the ashes. So there are there are places where that kind of fire would return, say lodgepole pine, jack pine. But for the most part, what we would see is a lot more fire in whatever pattern is historically and ecologically sensible for it. And we would either be doing the burning or allowing the burning to proceed. And my guess is we would be doing most of it. I don't think we're willing to surrender too much control over it. And part of this is that, you know, this is in perpetuity. We are going to be forever the keeper of the flame.
0: This is interesting because what I'm hearing you say is that if we don't restore a healthy balance on the climate, we will see these large mega fires grow bigger and wilder. And if we do move away from fossil fuels, we also will see a future with more fire, healthy Cool fire. So either way, we're going to see more fire than we've artificially come to expect in recent history because we have suppressed it in a way that is not in keeping with the the grand sweep of the human story, as you tell it.
1: That's right. So, I mean, California last year I think had four and a half million acres burned by fire. How much of that was really bad fire, and how much of that good? We really don't have. Metrics for certainly stuff that's burning through towns or over sequoia groves is not welcome, but we might very well uh, double or triple that in the future under a more sustainable climate. But it would be of a different form. And the other thing we've we've created unrealistic expectations about is smoke. And right now, as part of these mega fires, we've had these mega palls. I mean, these giant smoke clouds, palls that have extending the range of fires influence far beyond the flames themselves. The smoke would not go away in the future, but it would shift. So just as we would have good fires, we can have good smokes. Yeah, it would be nice if we didn't have any smoke maybe. but we can live with the smoke in the same way we do pollen or other sort of seasonal seasonal events. That can be managed. We're talking about a much smaller thing. But we have artificially cleaned our air from smoke from what it was historically.
0: Well, this is uh, mind shifting for me because I've lived in in California and the wildfires of the last five years have been disgusting and depressing to live through. And I thought, well, you know, if we are successful on climate, we will stop these wildfires and we will have more blue skies like I'm used to. And you're kind of Rocking my world here a little bit, saying that smoke's going to come back. And can you imagine fighting wildfires today without fossil-fueled tools like tankers and ATVs? And are, <laughs> are there alternatives in a world less dependent on fossil fuels?
1: Yeah. I mean, that that's another one of our, our paradoxes. Here we are. Could we have imagined suppressing fire in the way we do, or try to, if we took away all of our airplanes and helicopters? We took away all of our bulldozers and engines, and we took away all our pumps and chainsaws. What kind of firefighting could we do? It'd be preposterous. How was it that people were able to put fires out with burlap sacks and shovels? They were able to because the land was not erupting in fire the way we see it now.
0: As humans have lost touch with fire, as you've described, uh, and we're living in increasingly flammable landscapes because of climate change bringing higher heat and lower humidity, how should humans today and in the future live with fire?
1: Well, I think there are a number of things we can do. There's no reason we should have towns burning. I mean, we solved this problem a century ago, but then we forgot about it. We decided we didn't. it wasn't a problem anymore. We didn't have to pay attention. There's no reason for power lines to be starting fires under the worst conditions either. I mean, that's an infrastructure problem we've known has been around for decades. So we could stop our towns burning in a handful of years if we really chose to. The surrounding countryside is more complicated. There are a lot of things we can do. We've learned about it. There are mixtures of things. There's no one thing to do. People in the past were able to do it. Surely we can... We can do as much as our ancestors if we chose to. This might take a few decades. And then we have to tackle the climate issue. And that's that's trickier. Uh, it's going to take longer. But unless we address it, all the other mitigations will be overwhelmed eventually.
0: Thanks for coming on Climate One today.
1: Well, thanks for the invitation.
0: Stephen Pine is author of The Pyrocene and an emeritus professor at Arizona State University. Coming up how climate has changed the kinds of fires we're now experiencing.
2: I started fighting fire in 1975, and the difference between fire behavior in the mid-70s and the fire behavior we're observing now because of longer burning periods and higher temperatures, drier fuels, is absolutely astounding.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. Our tools for managing fire haven't changed much in the last several decades, but our understanding of fire behavior in ecology and how that's changing due to climate continues to evolve. Sue Husari started her career in fire as a seasonal wildlands firefighter and hotshot, later taking positions in fire management with the National Park Service and U.S. Forest Service. She's currently a member of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. Chad Hansen is an ecologist with the John Muir Project and author of Smokescreen, debunking wildfire myths to save our forest and our climate. Several fire experts we talked to described some of his views around logging as controversial. Climate One's Ariana Brocious spoke with them about the tools and strategies for living in this new age of wildfires.
5: Chad Hansen, much of your work focuses on opposing logging on public lands, not just clear cutting, but even forest thinning projects. That's a position that puts you at odds with most fire ecologists who think that some logging can be beneficial to reduce wildfire risk. What's your rationale for that position?
3: Just to be clear, the, the scientific context on this is quite different than a lot of people, I think, uh, think or, or assume. Logging conducted under the rubric of thinning does not stop weather and climate driven fires, and often, Uh, thinned areas burn more intensely. And so there is a broad base of scientific opinion opposing thinning. I think the main thing is a lot of people don't realize thinning is commercial logging. They hear the term thinning and they think of pruning shears. In reality, these are uh, intensive logging operations that kill and remove upwards of 60 or 70% of the trees in a given stand, including many mature and even old growth trees.
5: So, Sue, you've had a lot of experience working on projects like this, and obviously in positions of fire management with National Park Service and U.S. Forest Service. What do you think about what Chad just said?
2: Well, it's one viewpoint uh, that he's representing. There are a wide variety of other viewpoints on thinning. Thinning covers a wide range of activities, and not all of thinning is intended to uh, reduce fire risk. And uh, it depends on how the land is characterized, what the tree species are, and all that sort of thing. Thinning, if conducted correctly, in combination with uh, treatment of surface fuels, where the residue from removal of the trees is, is removed or prescribed burn, is a practice conducted even in the national parks. Thinning is not always for the purpose of commercial logging. In many cases, it has to be subsidized if the trees are smaller and have no commercial value. So I think the situation is far more complex and nuanced than what Dr. Hansen just presented.
5: So, Chad Hansen, I know another aspect of logging that you are opposed to is what's called salvage logging. So, this is when trees are harvested for timber after a wildfire has occurred. Can you explain that position and and the research you've done related to salvage logging?
3: Sure, absolutely. You know, and first thing, just to, just to clarify, you know, uh, Sue is exactly right that uh, not all thinning is is the same. In some cases, we're talking about seedlings and saplings that are being removed. The the main thing I'm trying to get across here is. Those are very rare exceptions. Uh, most of the time, on national forest lands and certainly on private timberlands, thinning is, uh, is an, in, an industrial logging operation where uh, most, uh, most of the trees are being killed and removed, including many mature and even old growth trees. Um, and in terms of post fire logging, uh, I think one of the things that hasn't been recognized by a lot of land managers is the fact that, according to hundreds, literally hundreds of scientific studies now, Post-fire habitats are some of the most ecologically valuable and biodiverse habitats in our forests. And that includes, and especially, areas where fire burns hot, those high-intensity fire patches. They create what we call snag forest habitat. These patches of of snags, these fire-killed trees, and all the wonderful native flowering plants that grow in naturally in the understory, stimulated by fire. And so salvage logging uh, damages that uh, incredibly um, incredibly important post-fire habitat that we call snag forest and that harms the species that depend on it.
5: Yeah, I think there's, in my estimation, a pretty widespread understanding that fire is a beneficial process in many ways for ecosystems and for forest ecology. The conflict, of course, occurs when those fires encroach on human habitation or human settlement and and our desire to uh, control them to some degree. So I do want to talk about natural fires, ones that start from lightning, for example. Sue, the Forest Service has for a long time had a position or a practice of near total suppression for even fires that were started Naturally, do you think that's the right approach? And have you seen a change in that approach in your career?
2: Well, uh, the Forest Service started developing uh, programs for natural fire use in, in wilderness uh, when I was in my twenties. Really, so we're talking forty-five years ago. The full suppression policy, the ten a.m. policy, was in effect where all fires were suppressed before ten a.m. That was the policy was in effect prior to the beginning of my career. And the Forest Service and the Park Service position on management of lightning fires has, um, has evolved over the years. The names for this type of management have changed, of course, prescribed natural fire, managed lightning fire, all that sort of thing. But uh, all the federal agencies have engaged in some level of management of lightning fires for the length of my career. Not all areas of national forests are subject to this, but many wilderness areas are.
5: Yeah, let me follow up on that, because I think the understanding I have is that it's actually really difficult for some federal agencies to let natural fires burn for some of the reasons having to do with, you know, getting close to towns and property and things like that, or even just smoke. Do you think that that's the case? I mean, is there pressure on the agencies to to put them out all the time?
2: Well, there's always pressure because of smoke, in particular, and there are a lot of areas where uh, letting natural fires burn is just not practical. Uh, it depends on the class- land classification for the Forest Service. Generally, um, areas that are ma- being managed for for timber production, that's not an option. But there are large areas. Some of the pioneering programs to manage lightning fire uh, got started in. The national forest system, for example, in the uh, various wilderness areas up in uh, the northern part of the country. Of course, the earliest natural fire programs were in Yosemite National Park and Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. Those have been in place for many, many years. But there are conflicting societal values that frequently make use of natural fire and also of prescribed fire difficult. I want to invite Chad to respond here.
5: So this is something, Chad Hansen, you have in your book. Uh, you discuss prescribed fire and what you see as some of the limitations of prescribed fire. Can you explain that?
3: Yeah, you know, first of all, and this I talk about this in my book, Smoke Screen, is that prescribed fire can and will at least temporarily modify wildland fire behavior and if a wildland fire you know occurs a few years later or several several years later you know there 's a period of time during which prescribed fire will modify that fire behavior and I think that the the problem is people make the assumption that if you do prescribe fire it 's either going to stop a wildfire, which really you know rarely if ever happens and second, they make the assumption that The prescribed fire will dramatically modify the wildfire and for a very long period of time. And I think what we're really talking about is a matter of degree, and especially during more extreme fire weather, you know, drought conditions and hot, dry, windy weather that drives fires, you know, because wildfires are driven mostly by climate and weather. And uh, I think people make the assumption that prescribed fire is some kind of a landscape scale panacea, and it's not. The thing is, people forget. Every time you do a prescribed burn, you're going to kill five to ten percent of the trees, on average, more like ten percent, according to you know kind of a, a broader summary of the literature out there in the science. And um, if you're going to try to burn every five or ten years, you're going to have an enormous amount of tree mortality, and you're still going to have the wildland fire. Um, and uh, you, you certainly you'll modify it somewhat, but in those hot, dry, windy, drought conditions, you know it's not going to be. Uh, an enormous modification so it's it's just important to realize that um that you're not going mimic you're not going to mimic the ecological value and benefits of a natural mixed intensity fire because the fact is different wildlife species need different fire intensities some like areas that burn relatively cool and and relatively few trees are killed and some like it hot
5: sue so I want to have you weigh in here on prescribed fires because I know this is a practice that has gained a lot of traction I think in recent years or recent decades so what's your view of the how effective it is as a tool responding to Chad's comments about you know that there are realities to setting deliberate fires uh, they have to occur occasionally at different times of year for the safety of those involved they may be less high intensity than a natural fire so what are your what are your thoughts on that
2: well i think dr hanson is correct but the effects of prescribed fires vary depending on what ecosystem you're operating in. In uh, some cases, we actually try to get crown involvement and tree mortality, such as in some jack pine stands and things like that in uh, the Northeast. In other areas, like where I worked in Everglades National Park, we had almost zero tree mortality. The amount of tree mortality that occurs from uh, prescribed burning varies on... What age classes are in the stand, So how old are the trees? And so of course, small trees do tend to be killed in prescribed burns. Prescribed burning, which has been a big focus of my career, describes a whole range of uh, different activities from burning piles to broadcast burning to uh, landscape level burning. And there is no no generalization that really describes it. The application is becoming more sophisticated. I think we're giving people better training. and uh, But we do all have to understand that there are risks associated with prescribed burning, both uh, from potential escapes, which do occur, but also uh, ecological impacts. Chad Hansen?
3: I think what's important is to understand a couple of things that I I think have raised concerns about prescribed burning as a landscape scale approach. Uh, First of all, there's a troubling trend that's concerned a lot of ecologists um, in my field that um, oftentimes uh, logging is conducted beforehand and prescribed burning is uh, logging slash pile burning is being called prescribed burning. A lot of people think that's deceptive and it's giving the public something that is not what they expected they're getting. The other thing is that it's really, really key to understand that fire needs to happen during fire season in order to have the ecological relationships intact. If prescribed fire is done during fire season, you're going to tend to get more mixed intensity fire, and that's a good thing. But you can get that with lightning strikes and just not suppressing them, which we need more of. Um, when fire prescribed fire is done outside of natural fire season, like in the early spring or in the late fall, what happens is, is that native species like native wood-boring beetles, for example, they're not active outside of fire season. And so they can't colonize the fire like they've been doing for millions of years. And because the wood-boring beetles don't colonize, the woodpeckers have no food uh, because the woodpeckers eat the larva of the wood-boring beetles in the fire-killed trees. And if the woodpeckers have no food, then they can't create nest cavities uh, for bluebirds and nuthatches and flying squirrels and and chipmunks. And you disrupt a whole series of ecological relationships that I've been studying for 20 years.
5: So elsewhere in this episode, we talk with Stephen Pine, author of the book Pyrocene. And one of the things he highlights there is the uh, history of fire that has evolved with Earth and with our human history as well, that really there was a lot more widespread fire than we're accustomed to in the last couple hundred years. So Susan, is it accurate to say that we're seeing more high severity fires now due to climate change?
2: Well, I've read the literature, but all I can speak from is my own personal experience. I started fighting fire in 1975, you know, hand crews. I worked on hotshot hot crews and a whole variety of crews. And then Uh, managed fires later. And the difference between fire behavior in the mid-70s and the fire behavior we're observing now because of longer burning periods and higher temperatures, drier fuels, and this is apart from drought, is absolutely astounding. So the patches of high-severity fire are larger and that's very well documented because we are we're able to do remote sensing and see that there's quite a bit in the literature regarding the potential that patches of high intensity fire are also larger than they were historically because of the uniformity of forest stands but also because of the conditions where fires can burn intensely 24 hours a day. Whereas in my experience as a young firefighter and through a good part of my career, the time when fire burned was mostly during the daytime. And then there would be opportunities to build direct line or do fire suppression at night or potentially burnouts. The length of the burning period now appeared to be close to 24 hours a day. Chad Hansen, in your book, you write, In the era
5: of climate change, we can no more stop weather-driven fires than we can stand on a ridge and fight the wind. So what should we do?
3: I I think we need to fundamentally rethink our approach. We have so much more information, so much more science now than we had historically. Um, We know now that weather and climate are dominant. You know, obviously, fire needs something to burn. You have to have vegetation to, to to drive the flames. But mostly, it's really flames are driven by twigs and pine needles and leaves and really small diameter material. What drives fire mostly are those hot, dry, windy conditions and, and drought situations. And we can't control those with air tankers and bulldozers or chainsaws. Um, we just we just can't. So. We need to pull back to our communities and focus our resources on saving homes and saving lives. We know we can do that effectively if we focus our resources there. We're not doing that currently. Right now, the great majority of our resources are being focused on backcountry fire suppression and backcountry logging, uh, usually under the you know, euphemisms like thinning or fuel reduction. Oftentimes, the fires are burning more intensely areas that were logged um, through thinning or post-fire logging. Uh, not always. There are always exceptions, but oftentimes. We need to make sure that when the fires reach communities, which they will, that communities are protected, that homes don't burn, that people and their animals can evacuate safely, and they have the assistance to do that, and the assistance to do the home hardening and annual defensible space pruning to keep their homes safe. And we had things like fire-safe shelters with air filters. That's where the conversation needs to go.
5: Hussari, you spent the early part of your career fighting wildfires and then um, managing them in in federal agencies. What do you think we should do, given this climate reality that we're experiencing and, and the propensity for it to become even worse in the future? What tools do we have within the federal agencies to better manage and respond to fires?
2: We still do a lot of our firefighting with, as they euphemistically call it, boots on the ground. I agree with Dr. Hansen that we need to put a lot of focus and the state of California as well as the federal agencies are focusing a great deal of their uh, resources on producing defensible, expanding a defensible space around communities. I believe that a lot of the most important work that we do is with communities to uh, help people work on their defensible space around their houses, to provide ingress and egress from subdivisions, to educate the public and local government on where and when new communities should be built, where the safest places are. As a whole, we need to use all the tools that are available available and especially the communication tools with the public to get a better understanding of within all people of the current situation that it potentially could get worse and what we all need to do to uh, basically keep communities safe and also protect as much of our very, very valuable and wonderful natural resources uh, that we possibly can.
5: Suhusari has a long career in wildfire and public lands management, starting as a seasonal wildlands firefighter and leading to careers in fire management with the National Park Service and Forest Service. She's currently a member of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. Chad Hansen is an ecologist with the John Muir Project and author of Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Thank you both for joining us on Climate One today. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You're listening to a conversation about how to live in an age of megafires. Coming up. A look at the merits and flaws of a program that trains inmates to be firefighters in California.
6: There are rehabilitative elements to it, but not if you're a firefighter while you're being a prisoner.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. We're talking about living in this new era of huge wildfires and how to respond to it. California has experienced several years of record-setting wildfires. A third of the people who fight wildfires in California are inmates. Journalist Jamie Lowe takes us into this world in her new book, Breathing Fire, Female Inmate Firefighters on the Front Lines of California's Wildfires. These firefighters live in camps outside of prison walls where they train and wait, ready to respond to fires.
6: They really look almost like spiritual retreats. They're sort of in these wooded areas. They're in nature. There aren't fences or barbed wire. There's maybe a sign that says state prison. And so it's a very, you know, deceptive kind of Sense where you don't know you're actually entering something that's run by CDCR, California's correctional department.
0: Lowe says the orange clad inmates train and operate similar to a free world forestry crew, except they're more closely monitored.
6: They're on the ground doing containment lines, they're they're basically hacking away at any growth that might set fire. They're doing what's arguably some of the most labor-intensive and hardest work because they're right there in the smoke. They're on the front lines.
0: Right. Doing the doing the grunt work. Inmate firefighters make up as much as 3% of California's wildland fire crews. Most of the crews are men, but women have been in the program since the early 80s. So tell us about that, that dimension.
6: Sure. So one of the reasons that some incarcerated people will opt to go into this program is that you can get days off of your sentence for serving your time that way. And at some point in the 80s, it was found to be discriminatory that men could do this and women couldn't. And so they opened up these three female camps, Rainbow, Puerto La Cruz, and Malibu. I think there's probably a capacity of about Roughly a hundred people per camp, so there's only three to four hundred women at most at a time. And right now, there are a lot less incarcerated firefighters than there were pre-pandemic.
0: And what's the appeal for inmates, especially women, to fight on a wildland fire crew? You know, what are the perks? And what are the downsides?
6: One of the main appealing factors is that you're not serving your time in state prison, which After having read about a lot of the circumstances where you're surrounded by violence, sexual predatory behavior by correctional officers, by other inmates, that you have malnutrition, poor health, that you're basically isolated and far from your family, the idea that you can serve your time in a place that is surrounded by woods and you're not behind barbed wire is Very appealing. Mm, One woman that I spoke to described seeing her child in state prison in Chowchilla, where the only way they could visit is that she would put her hand up against the plexiglass and her kid would put his hand against the plexiglass. And that was the closest they came to contact. And when she was at camp, they could hug. You can rent a cabin and spend a night with your family. There's Something that's slightly more humane. And I think that there's, you know, I don't think that women or men, and there are juvenile camps too, I don't think that they're they're necessarily opting to risk their lives. I think they're opting out of a certain kind of dehumanizing torture that we've come to accept as what our prisons and jails are.
0: Right, and then the the downsides are they aware of the you know the potential health risks, other sorts of things like that?
6: You know, I think some people might be, and some people probably aren't. I think that some people go into it thinking this will be an easy way to do time, and I'll just skate through and don't realize how much physical intensity is involved in every aspect of the training of being on call i mean cuz there are sleepless nights where you're getting these false alarms and then you're basically spending 3 4 nights 5 nights in a row where you're not sure what's happening because you're you might go to a call you might not you might be dragged out for a little bit and come back and then that's not even to talk about the intensity of being on the fire line for weeks at a time
0: Sure. Tell us about Shauna Lynn Jones, one of the inmate firefighters you profile
6: in the book. So she was actually where I started. I was home in my mom's kitchen and reading the LA Times. And they had this very small 500-word story about this woman, Shauna Lynn Jones, who had died. She was an incarcerated firefighter who was at Malibu. And I was really struck by these two things. One, I grew up in California and had no idea that there were incarcerated firefighters and that the program existed. And that was really embarrassing for me because I should have known <laughs> and I felt like somebody should have been talking about it, but I didn't know. And the second part of it was that she was really just described in these two short sentences and it was what her crime was and it was that she was from Lancaster, California. I just wanted to know more about her. I felt like I wanted to know more about the program and I wanted to know more about who she was within the program. I wanted to know more about her family and where she came from, how she ended up there, what it was like for her to be a firefighter. I wanted to try and tell her story, even though she had passed away. And maybe because she had, because I felt like I wanted to know. And so maybe other people would too.
0: And she wanted to be a firefighter when she got out, right? Would her training have prepared her for one of those cherished jobs after release as a firefighter?
6: Yeah, she had told her mom, um, she had told several of her friends who she spoke with that she wanted to be in forestry. She wanted to continue the work that she had been learning. She was itching to go out on a fire the whole time she was there and it had been kind of a quiet season. You know, I'm not sure I can answer the question if she would have been prepared because I think that, I don't know. I like, I don't know the the level of where she wanted to go or what she wanted to do specifically and what she had already done. Um, I feel like it's very possible that she wouldn't have been prepared because I think that fire seasons got much, much more intense, much worse. And that even very seasoned professional free world firefighters sometimes aren't prepared for, what the reality of fire is right now.
0: Well, climate change is making the fires much more fierce, large. You know, Cal Fire is having to redo their models because they're moving faster, more intense. These firestorms, even veteran firefighters are seeing things they've never seen in their career, fueled by low precipitation, high winds, the ferocity of these fires. One of the fire camp commanders told you about all the benefits women gain from working on the fire crew: self-esteem, work ethic, skills, exercise. Did you hear the same from the women you interviewed? Did they view the program as a benefit to them?
6: There was a range of response to that, um, but a lot of the women and many more than I expected really did have some positive takeaways and some, you know, Discussions with me about transformation and about how being on a crew really meant that you had to work together. There was the phrase, you know, sister crew that was used often, where it didn't matter what kinds of, you know, arguments or beefs you had with anyone around you. When you were on the fire, you had to work or somebody was going to die. And all of the women I spoke to, did have this, like, faint nostalgia for what they achieved and this purpose and the work that they actually put in and what they got back. You know, they all also, you know, would talk about how difficult it was to do all of that and have all that responsibility while being prisoners,
0: right they get paid uh, next to nothing 2 to 5 dollars a day plus a dollar for every hour on the fire line you know tell us about the compensation piece of this how this you know this fits into you know uh, the increasing wildfires we're seeing in the west and the economics of it
6: so one aspect of the pay is that it's one of the highest paid jobs within prison industries in california so, it's actually a shockingly low amount when you're comparing it to professional crews, free world crews. But it still is an incredibly attractive job within prison industries, which tells you a lot about prison industries and how that exploits labor. But forestry crews don't make a lot either. And California's had a really hard time recruiting and filling hotshot crews, they make $13.30 an hour. It's shockingly low. Wow. That's below minimum. That's like most fast food workers at this point make more. And so they have no health benefits. It's seasonal employees. So they're hired in April, fired in November. And we've seen a lot of big fires come after November, like the Paradise Fire and the Wolseley Fire was after seasonal crews were let go. We have to start rethinking how we're approaching staffing, how we're approaching all of the ways that we look at fire and address fire and manage it because we can't fight it anymore. It's like it's clearly a reality that's part of California.
0: And California passed a law trying to make it easier for prison firefighters to become professional firefighters, but it apparently was a well-intended but not well-written law allowing for that pathway from from a prison firefighter. Where does that stand now?
6: I don't know exactly where it stands. I mean, Newsom Governor Newsom signed it into law last September, and the idea was to expedite expungement.
0: Expungement of criminal records so they could get jobs, right?
6: So it actually isn't even expunged it's, it's just when employers are looking to hire formerly incarcerated firefighters who do get expedited expungement, they will still see the criminal record. Uh, That's one of the problems with the bill. And okay. so there are several problems that I see. And one of them is that you have to navigate reentry while you're going through a lengthy legal process where you have to apply through a judge a judge has to approve the expedited expungement a da then has the option to appeal the judge's decision so you have to kind of get go through all that you have to retake all the training that you've done you have to take all the tests over and this requires a lot of support it requires a lot of community support you know like most people who come out of prison have to get several jobs. They have to, you know, work immediately. They have to figure out housing. And it's in a world that is very uninhabitable for people with felonies. And so they're navigating all of this legal system. Then you have to get hired by Cal Fire or by a municipal agency. And they, like I said earlier, can see that you have a criminal record. And both of these Bureaucracies are notoriously discriminatory. And the head of the CAL FIRE union came out against the bill. And it makes absolutely no sense for a state that is in absolute catastrophe to have trained people who know how to fight fire, who then want to fight fire and have a job doing it and not hire them.
0: You write that California has always had a fire problem now that that problem is a constant crisis because of climate change. So how do you see this playing out as there, these fires in the West are going to stay with us?
6: Going back to the idea that this program is actually a positive program with some parts of it that are actually really useful, I think that it can be folded in or part of the California Conservation Corps where instead of like for charges that actually should not be part of mass incarceration for things that are drug charges or things that are related to mental health or things that are nonviolent, that you have an option to maybe go to a camp, have social services, but also get paid minimum wage and work for California Conservation Corps, be part of a fire training crew, and then ease into a job afterwards if you actually want a job and not have a felony on your record, it seems like that could be an option where you take CDCR out of the fire camp program and you make it something else entirely and independent. And there are some efforts to do that. The Ventura Training Center is one. And the other thing is that I think within uh, President Biden's infrastructure bill, there's a portion of it that's for a climate core, a civilian climate corps, And I think that that also could easily be adapted. You know, you could use that as the program that takes over the, these fire camps and use the funding to run them and pay people and make it something that is a positive. Because I do think that there are rehabilitative elements to it but not if you're a firefighter while you're being a prisoner.
0: Jamie Lowe, author of Breathing Fire, female inmate firefighters on the front lines of California's wildfires. Thanks for sharing your stories today with us on Climate One.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about how to live in the new age of climate-driven megafires. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency, Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basiglia is our production manager. Our team also includes consulting producer Sarah Catherine Coxon. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.